morning. Welcome to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I'm Morgan Kristen, and I'm uh, one of the judges on the circuit court. My pleasure to be presiding today, and my pleasure to be sitting with my colleague from Portland, Judge Forrest. We both want to thank and welcome Judge Anello for joining us uh, to and helping us out on our calendar today. Thanks. I just want to do a thank you. I just would like to do a sound check quickly. I know the uh, judges in San Francisco can hear me, but uh, I, I want to make sure that both lawyers can. Could you just give me a thumbs up if you can hear me? Great, and you can hear the judges in San Francisco as well, I hope. Yes, great. Okay, we'll go ahead and hear the first case on our calendar, which is case number 20-17422, Chattanooga Professional Baseball versus National Casualty. We're ready for your argument, counsel. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Ori Levy, and I represent a group of minor league baseball teams who were denied insurance coverage for significant losses they suffered when their stadiums became functionally useless in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. With the court's permission, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. That's fine. Just keep an eye on the clock. Thank you, Judge. Your Honors, the narrow issue presented by this appeal is the district court's error in finding that a virus exclusion barred coverage at the motion to dismiss stage where the policyholders have alleged numerous causes of their loss within the causal chain, the exclusion does not contain an anti-concurrent causation clause widely available in the marketplace and which appears in numerous other parts of these very policies, and where the policyholders have adequately alleged the elements of both regulatory and equitable estoppel. Beginning with causation, Your Honors, which is the focus of my argument today, it is well established under longstanding insurance law that the insurer bears a heavy burden to establish that a policyholder's loss falls squarely and entirely within a policy exclusion. As a result, where the policyholder has alleged numerous causes of loss within the causal chain, including facts and circumstances giving rise to that loss which are covered under the policy, whether an exclusion applies to bar coverage is a quintessential question of fact that cannot be resolved at the motion to dismiss stage. To avoid that factual inquiry, insurance companies have at their counsel, 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 could we, forgive me for interrupting, but <clears throat> we've heard lots of cases where we've ruled on exclusions as a matter of law. So really, it's a, a quintessential question of fact that we can't rule on? Uh, Your Honor, I, I readily concede that if the only alleged cause of loss was the virus, which was the case in most of the cases cited by the insurers here today, that the court could resolve that issue as a matter of law. But that isn't what our complaint says. Our complaint in exacting detail alleges numerous distinct facts and circumstances within the causal chain. And it's the I, insurer's burden. Yes, Judge. I think there's five of them. I think there's five of them. So let's talk about the law, please, uh, that pertains to concurrent cause. Let's, let's, I would like to hear your best argument on, on that. Yes, Judge, and I, I would point your Honor's attention actually to certain of the cases that were cited by the insurers here today, including the Madera decision and the Beach Glow Tanning decision. Both of those cases include comprehensive discussions of the efficient proximate cause doctrine as applied to the COVID context. And what those cases held is that where an ACC clause is not included in the exclusion, if there is a covered cause of loss in the causal chain, the exclusion does not bar coverage at the motion to dismiss stage. And in those cases, the only reason the courts held that the exclusion applied is because the only causes of loss alleged by the insured were the virus and resulting civil authority orders. 
Now, there is a body of case law, an emerging body of case law, embodied by the Susan Spath decision, by the Scranton Club decision, which have held that a virus exclusion identical to the one we have here today doesn't apply where the insured has alleged distinct causes of loss within the causal chain. So, counsel, I want to make sure I understand your argument. Are you saying that we cannot apply the efficient proximate cause standard as a matter of law, that it has to be factual? No, Your Honor. I'm saying that the efficient proximate cause doctrine, although it can be applied as a matter of law in certain cases, cannot be applied as a matter of law here. Because based on the allegations of our complaint, we have pled sufficient causes of loss that are covered under the policy that an efficient proximate cause analysis is inappropriate at the motion to dismiss stage. I don't understand that, counsel. Counsel, just at the premise of the rule we're talking about is where there's concurrent causes, right? So if you're right that there's no anti-ACC clause here, then why aren't we just left with California law, West Virginia law, and so forth? Well, Your Honor, under that paradigm, if you are left with those state law authorities, then you wouldn't be able to apply the exclusion at the motion to dismiss stage. Under cases from each of those jurisdictions, where you have alleged in the complaint concurrent causes of the loss, such as we have alleged here, courts don't allow insurers to enforce virus exclusions, other types of exclusions, at the motion to dismiss stage. And I want to be very clear here, because I think this is getting lost in some of the case law. We're not asking this court to find that we're entitled to coverage. That's not the question before the court. We understand. We understand. Right. All we're asking the court is to enforce decades of bedrock insurance law, that whereas here the policyholder has alleged distinct causes of loss within a causal chain, the policyholder is entitled to take discovery, and the insurance company should be held to its burden of proof to have to show, based on that discovery, what the predominant cause of the loss is. Now, the insurers here have tried to short-circuit that. They've tried to say, well, look at the allegations in the complaint. If you look at those allegations, you can conclude that under the efficient proximate cause doctrine, there are no distinct causes of loss from the virus, and that the virus is the predominant cause of the loss. But that's just not true. If you look at the allegations in our complaint, for example, one of the points in the causal chain that we have focused the court's attention on is government inaction preceding the pandemic. Our argument isn't that the virus somehow gave rise to government inaction. Our argument is that government inaction was the cause that set the virus in motion on the insured property. Wait, wait, wait. The government action set the virus in motion? The argument is that the government inaction is what allowed the virus to be present on the insured property. Oh, you said inaction. The government's inaction? Yes, yes. One of the problems with Zoom. I'm sorry, Your Honor. No, no, no. I'll try to slow down a little bit. That's all right. I just didn't want you to be telling me that the virus is the government's fault. I think I understand your position is the government's inaction set the virus loose. That's what you said? That's right, Judge. I'm not blaming the government for the virus. That's not our position. Our position is encapsulated in paragraphs 61 through 65 of our complaint. And again, I want to bring the court's attention back to the very cases that are cited by the insurance company in this case. Counsel, can I interrupt? Forgive me for interrupting. I know you're so well prepared. I can tell that. But he's going to argue in just a minute. The opposing counsel is going to argue that this is one of those cases where it's not an issue of fact, where as a matter of law, we can say this is the predominant cause. You know, he's going to argue that. 
So can I get your best shot at that? Absolutely. And I think the best answer to your question can be found in an analogy, Judge. It is a perfect example in insurance law as a situation where you have an employee who negligently turns off the power in a building and the sump pumps stop working and you have flood damage and flood is excluded under the policy. And so the insurance company denies coverage. And the court says, no, 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 not at the motion to dismiss stage because employee negligence is a risk covered under the policy that gave rise to the flood, which gave rise to the loss. That is the efficient proximate cause doctrine in action. In our case, we have government negligence leading to the presence of the virus. We have major league baseball decision to not supply players following the onset of the virus. And we have distinct civil authority orders. That is analogous to those types of quintessential insurance law cases I just described to you. And to bring it home, Your Honor, that's actually what the cases the insurers point to show. In almost every case the insurers rely on, there is either an ACC clause in the exclusion or the only alleged cause of loss was the virus or civil authority orders. Those are the two categories of cases that comprise the bulk of the insurer's cases. We are distinct from that. We are unique. If your argument was correct, why wouldn't plaintiffs always just allege more than one cause so that they could get past the pleading stage and get into discovery? It seems like you're painting this rule too broadly. I mean, the district court accepted that there were multiple causes alleged and then said some of them just aren't plausible or they're not plausibly independent. And we have to wrestle with that. And I guess I'm still struggling with the way that you're presenting this argument suggests that so long as we've got multiple causes alleged, hands off, we've got to go to the discovery stage. Your Honor, I'm not asking for a rule of law that's quite that broad. What I'm asking for is this court to apply preexisting law that says where a policyholder has plausibly alleged, and I submit we have plausibly alleged, distinct causes of loss within the causal chain, we should be entitled to discovery. And, Your Honor, you know what? We may very well lose on summary judgment. We may very well lose a trial. But I want to bring it back to the standard that we're dealing with here. We are at a standard where all reasonable inferences should be drawn in our favor and where all allegations must be accepted as true. When the court below found that our allegations weren't plausible, I submit to you that that is a factual determination that can't be made on this complaint. Counsel? Counsel? Is the government in action? It sounds like you're talking about the government's actions and inactions on both ends of the virus. That is the inaction at what I'll call the outset, the suggestion that the virus spread should have been prevented by the government, had it acted earlier than the virus, and then that last part of the causal chain, I guess, would be the government's stay-at-home orders and whatnot that were initiated or issued after the virus. Is that right? It is. It is, Judge. We are alleging a series of events and circumstances along a causal chain, only one of which would be excluded by the policy. So is your argument that the efficient proximate cause that set other events in motion was the government's inaction at the outset of the virus? In other words, that the spread should have been prevented? That's right. That's right. That's one of our allegations under the efficient proximate cause doctrine. I think the important point is that it's the insurer's burden to establish that an exclusion applies. And so they have to establish that the predominant cause of the loss is excluded under this policy and that there is no other concurrent cause. 
They can't do that on this complaint. We haven't had any discovery that would allow them to even make that showing. So all you have from them is argument. I, got, I think we've got your argument and you wanted to say five minutes, but you've got about three and a half left now. Would you like to reserve? I would. Thank you, Your Honors. Okay. Thank you for your argument. Let's hear from opposing counsel, please. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. Brian Cabianca on behalf of the appellees. The district court correctly dismissed the team's claims for two key reasons. First, the insurance policies broadly exclude coverage for any damage, quote, caused by or resulting from any virus. And as the team's amended complaint makes clear, absent the coronavirus pandemic, the 2020 minor league baseball season would not have been canceled for the first time in 100 years. In paragraph 45 of the team's complaint, they allege, quote, the nature of the virus has caused authorities around the country to issue stay-in-place orders. And then they go on in that same paragraph to say, indeed, authorities in each of the team's respective states have issued such orders. In paragraph 71, the teams admit, and this is again in their amended complaint, this is a quote, as a result of the virus, the attendant disease, resulting pandemic, government responses, and major league baseball not supplying the players, the teams have been deprived of their primary source of revenue. And what the teams are trying to do here is they're trying to draw a distinction between the coronavirus on the one hand and the responses and resulting conduct from the coronavirus. So can I interrupt you here? I read the complaint the way you are reading it, that the argument was that the causal chain we were focusing on was the virus and then the resulting orders. And the distinction, as you just described it, struck me as perhaps not very plausible, frankly. That's just my vote, my view coming into argument. But the argument I just heard is that it's the government inaction on the front end that caused the spread of the virus in the first place. I guess I have two questions. One is, is that in the complaint? Has that been the argument that you've been responding to throughout this litigation? Whether it is or not, I'd like to hear your response to it. My response to that is, I believe, I don't recall whether it was in the complaint, but Your Honor, if it is, I think it's, if it's government inaction, to me, that just makes the virus more of the direct cause because the government didn't intervene and the virus went, I mean, was more of a direct cause if possible. And there've been a number of cases where plaintiffs have tried to allege that, you know, in the 10 ELLC case, which is a central district of California case from, I believe earlier this year, the plaintiffs in that case alleged that the stay at home orders were issued not solely to prevent the spread of the virus, but to influence the presidential election. And the district court there said, that's just not plausible. There's no plausible facts to support that. That's not a reasonable inference from the complaint. And when you look at this complaint, when they have the allegations they do throughout it, this complaint is 152 paragraphs and they mentioned the coronavirus 60 times. It's just not plausible to argue that anything else other than the coronavirus is what caused and resulted in the minor league baseball canceling its season. And the reason why the courts have held that, we cited, there's 37 cases, Your Honor, 
that have applied this exact same virus exclusion with no ACC language. And they have all ruled that stay-at-home orders, and we cited those at page nine, we cited 13 of those in our answering brief, and then an additional 24 in our citation of supplement authority that we filed on July 20th. And uh, th those cases, the reason why the courts have done that so consistently is this virus exclusion is not limited to uh, damage caused by the virus. It also has the broad language resulting from, and the district courts uh, throughout the country have said resulting from uh, requires only a minimal causal connection or incidental relationship. And the amended complaint, um, it, it's just, it's not a reasonable inference from reading. Well, the, resulting, the, the resulting from, if I may interrupt, forgive me, the resulting from language is why I think that your argument regarding the, the resulting stay-at-home orders and California's blueprint for a safer economy and whatnot strike me as pretty squarely within that exclusion. That's why I was interested to hear your response to the argument that the government's actions or inactions on the front end may have been responsible. The, the, but the, if, if the government, if it, the point is that the government inaction, that just means the virus was left unchecked and the virus caused more damage as a result of that. To me, it's a closer connection, not a further connection. Well, I heard um, that. I, I heard that. If it's, if it's strictly inaction, I guess what, you know, his analogy has to do with unplugging this pump and allowing this calamity to happen in the first place. I just wanted to get an opportunity for you to respond. I don't think there is a response in these briefs. I'm not sure the argument was raised in these briefs, so that's why I was slowing you down there. Forgive me, for, I'll get out of your way. Yeah, uh, let's talk about arguments that weren't raised in the briefs uh, below, because uh, you mentioned that, Your Honor. The anti-concurrent cause language. Now, the teams argue that this virus exclusion does not include anti-concurrent cause language. That argument has absolutely been raised or waived. They, they did not raise it anywhere below, and they even have gone so far in their appellate briefs to chastise the district court for not considering the fact that the anti concurrent cause language is not in the virus exclusion. But even putting aside, and, and nowhere below did they even argue that there was any missing language from the virus exclusion that made it ambiguous. In fact, it, ER excerpts of record 153 and 154, in response to the motion to dismiss, the teams argued that it was not ambiguous. And they only argued two things below. One is causation, um, that the virus didn't cause these losses and two, regulatory estoppel. But on this- uh, So, so counsel, there's no ACC clause in this um, virus exclusion. I think you both conceded that point. And so, and so it seems to me that uh, then we go to the state laws, states laws, I guess 10 different states in this case. Is that the correct analysis? Um, I think the first thing you do is go to the language of the-, the uh, I think the virus exclusion is broad enough to cover the alleged um, causes of the uh, shutdown here. And in wanna, each of the- I wanna pick up on that point for-, for um, So I, I, I agree with Judge Kristen that it seems like the stay at home orders and those sort of civil enforcement orders follow naturally from the virus. And, and it's hard to see any other conclusion. But what about the um, not getting players? I mean, I. It may be a matter of how that was pled, but my recollection is that the complaint doesn't expressly say that there's a causal connection between the virus and the decision not to send players. Maybe that's just a fair inference. 
But would you address that point? Why is that not a factual question? The reason, Your Honor, is because there is no reasonable inference that you can take from reading the complaint other than that the reason why Major League Baseball did not provide players for the first time in 100 years is a result of the coronavirus. And there's no plot. There's certainly no plausible explanation. There's no facts pled, which would give any other explanation other than the coronavirus is the reason why the teams did not provide players for the first time in 100 years. On the anti-concurrent clause language, I just wanted to point out that in each of those 37 cases I mentioned, the anti-virus or the virus exclusion did not include anti-concurrent clause language. And the courts in those cases, a mix, but most of them went to first just applying the language of the actual virus exclusion itself to say resulting from is broad. It includes anything that has a minimal causal connection. And then we also get some courts went to the efficient cause analysis and said, you know, even even if that weren't the case, when you have two causes, one covered and one excluded, you have to file apply an efficient cause approximate cause analysis, which we don't think you need to apply here because the virus exclusion does it on its own. But there's no way this complaint gets passed an efficient cause approximate cause analysis. Well, I don't understand. I don't understand why we wouldn't have to go to this to the 10 different states and look to how they handle allegations where there's concurrent cause allegations. And you seem to be saying said a couple of times now, just look at the exclusion without resorting to the to the law of the several states. Can you explain that to me? Yes, because an efficient approximate cause analysis only applies when there's a covered cause and an uncovered cause. Right. That's what he's alleging. But there's no plausible explanation for why that would be the case when you read the complaint. It's not a reasonable inference from reading the complaint. What if we disagree with you? I think that there's a and we want to rule on this as a matter of law. Let's decide we get there and we think we can rule on this matter of law. There's not a question of fact. And then at that point, wouldn't we look to the 10 different states? You would, Your Honor, but there would be two things you'd have to do before you get to an efficient approximate cause analysis. One is you would have to say there's a cause set forth in the complaint that doesn't result from the coronavirus and the virus exclusion, therefore, doesn't apply. Or at least there's a question of fact about that. Right. At least there's a question of fact. Yes. Well, I think what the question would be is whether the complaint sets forth a plausible explanation other than the coronavirus. So that would be that exclusion. Then there is also the exclusion for lapses, cancellation or suspension of any contract. And you would have to then say that doesn't apply here. And then you could do an efficient approximate cause analysis. And that analysis, you know, the test there is what cause predominates and led to set forth in the chain of motion the other causes. And there is almost almost right, because let's just say for this hypothetical that I'm not finding that your argument regarding the other exclusion to be persuasive. If you could just take that as a hypothetical given for now. Right. And then we get to the laws of various states. And the one you just verified, I think, is California. And the efficient approximate cause analysis seems to me to be awfully similar in about eight of those states. 
it's a little bit different in West Virginia, a little bit different in, in um, uh, Texas. Could you talk about those states, please? And, and do they, would they be entitled to try to apportion, for example, in Texas? Uh, no, Your Honor. Um, the, I think in all 10 jurisdictions, the, the test is not substantively different. It may have uh, be worded different, but the, the test is still the same. When there's a predominant cause, it sets everything else in motion. Um, that would Texas, be... Texas doesn't use that language. Did you, did you want to engage in the Texas? Um, my, my gross paraphrase of the Texas test is that in cer certain circumstances where there are two causes, alleged that Texas allows apportionment. Let's just to speak broadly to it. I don't think there's any proximate cause test that you could apply uh, based on this complaint and conclude that anything other than the virus was the cause for minor okay. league baseball not having a season. So you get to the same place anyway. Correct. Do you want to speak? You just have a few minutes left. Do you want to speak to your other exclusion um, or regulatory estoppel? Yes, thank you, Your Honor. Um, regulatory estoppel was the second key point that the district court made. It has no application here. It is an outlier theory that has been rejected in virtually every jurisdiction. Um, and we cited the Captain Scripps court uh, case from the Michigan Eastern District in June of this year, the Snyder General case, but more fundamentally about whether these 10 jurisdictions have adopted regulatory estoppel, and they haven't. It's, the two outlier jurisdictions that have applied regulatory estoppel are Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And there have been eight district court cases where they have said, okay, Pennsylvania and New Jersey have adopted regulatory estoppel, but it doesn't apply here. And the reason why it doesn't apply is because regulatory estoppel requires uh, the insurance companies to have taken a different position previously and changed it now. And, and they haven't done that. Um, the insurance company in the 2006 ISO circular, the insurance companies put the world on notice that we view uh, any losses caused by or resulting from a virus as being excluded. That's the exact same thing that the insurers are arguing here. And the Eastern District of Pennsylvania in the Merrick case, they said the insurance company's uh, position in the 2006 circular and now are quote, directly aligned. And then you know that his opposing, you know, opposing counsel's argument, because it's in the brief, which is that that, that was a, a switcheroo, that in and of itself is a switcheroo, because the allegation is that their agents went to the uh, state regulators and, and represented um, uh, something that wasn't correct about coverage in order to um, add an exclusion and without dropping premiums. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but you know this argument. I just would like to hear your response before your time is up. Yeah. The, the, the these exact same allegations have been heard in eight of the cases, each in the, in the district's courts in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. They've rejected the same allegations that you just paraphrased uh, on behalf of the plaintiffs. And the reason why is because there has to be an inconsistent position. And even what they say was misrepresented was this is not a covered claim. And so I, I can go into it. I see my time is running. But the point of all of that is that there's no reliance on anything the insurance company has done, and they haven't taken an inconsistent position. And for that reason, unless the, the court has additional questions, uh, we ask that the district court's decision be affirmed. Hold on just one minute before you, um, I started to say sit down, but I mean, now I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I want to make sure, did we, 
either of my colleagues have additional questions. I have one follow-up question on the contract suspension ex exclusion. Um, I mean, the language of that exclusion is that it applies when there's a suspension, lapse, or cancellation of a contract. It seems to me that none of those things happened here. Maybe there was a breach of contract, but that there wasn't a, a suspension or a cancellation. Do you, would you address that? Yes. A, a, a lapse, suspension, or uh, cancellation is actually broader. A breach is more narrow. And let me give you an example. Uh, in this case, for example, if Major League Baseball did not provide players it may not have been a breach. There may have been a force majeure or some other thing that allowed, breach connotes uh, wrongful conduct, like something you're not supposed to do. Lapse, cancellation, or suspension is actually broader than that. So um, for that reason, uh, that, that exclusion for coverage applies directly here. Okay. Janello, anything? No, not, not, not for this lawyer. I may have a question or two for plaintiff's counsel in a minute here. Thanks. Very good. Thank you for your argument, counsel. It's very helpful. We'll hear from opposing counsel in rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to, to make a few brief points in reply, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep it short. On the government's inaction point, um, that argument was, was absolutely brief, Your Honor. Uh, just you know, flipping through the briefs now, it's, I see it on page four of our reply brief and in a few other places. So it, it certainly was raised. Um, the second point is that it was uh, fully alleged in our complaint at paragraphs 61 through 65. Um, so the, the notion that we haven't alleged government in action, we, we absolutely did allege government in action. And the third point I'd like to make on, on the government in action argument is what you really just heard from my opposing counsel is, well, that's just not plausible. And I, I submit to your honors, it absolutely is plausible. The notion that if, for example, the CDC had not sent out faulty tests, something we allege in our complaints, if the CDC had issued uh, recommendations and guidelines earlier, there are studies that we've identified in our complaint that there would have been hundreds of thousands of fewer cases. Now, whether that bears out after discovery, time will tell, but we should have the opportunity to prove the truth of those allegations through discovery. Council, can't we look at the experience across the world and assess plausibility? I mean, this is not just a United States issue, it's a worldwide issue. Yes, I actually think you should look at conduct across the world in assessing plausibility. Because if you look at a place like New Zealand, for example, they had stadiums full of fans. And the reason is because they put in extremely intense lockdown orders from day one, which allowed them to mitigate the spread of the virus. So that type of argument, Your Honor, and it's, and it's an argument that I, I understand where you're coming from. That's what discovery may bear out, but we're not there yet. Where we are now is that the truth of the allegations in our complaint uh, are, are accepted as true. And frankly, if the insurance companies are so secure in their belief that they're gonna blow us out of the water, then give us a chance to prove them otherwise, because we will. The second point I'd like to make, Your Honor, is that on this concept of efficient proximate cause requiring something that sets the chain in motion, that's, that's just not the standard. I mean, if you look at the insurer's own cases, look at Beach Glow Tanning, for example. That case, and I'm, and I'm gonna quote from that case, recovery may be allowed where the insured risk was the last step in the chain of causation set in motion by an uninsured peril, or where the insured risk itself set into operation a chain of causation in which the last step may have been an accepted risk. 
I absolutely agree that this court needs to look at state law. And when the court looks at the state laws that are applicable here, it will find numerous cases applying the efficient proximate cause doctrine, even where there's an uninsured peril that sets the risk in motion. But again, that's not even what we have here. We have alleged that government inaction is what set the chain in motion. And I would submit that you really haven't heard much of a response to that from my opposing counsel. I'd also like to address briefly the lapse cancellation and suspension argument. I think the court hit this right on the head in identifying that we have not alleged a lapse cancellation or suspension of a contract. Those are terms of art with specific meaning. These are sophisticated insurance companies that know how to include a breach of contract exclusion, and they didn't. What we alleged is that MLB was required to supply players under its contract, and it didn't. The exclusion does not apply on its face as a matter of law, and that was clear error by the lower court. On the point of regulatory estoppel, I see my time is up, Your Honors. If you'd like to hear additional argument on that point, I'd be happy to, but otherwise we can rest on our briefs or I could answer any questions the court may have. If I may, just on the regulatory estoppel issue, defense counsel mentioned it. I'd be interested in your argument, at least your best shot. Even assuming the panel were to recognize regulatory estoppel, that's a big issue, how can it do so when estoppel principles in the insurance context, and I think particularly in these particular states, cannot be employed to expand coverage? Wouldn't estoppel here result in expanding coverage? It's a great question, Your Honor, and your question actually speaks to, I think, an analytical misstep that we're seeing in a lot of federal court decisions on this issue. We are not asking the court to expand coverage. In a lot of these cases, what courts are finding is you can't rely on extrinsic evidence to interpret an unambiguous exclusion to expand coverage. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that under bedrock principles of estoppel, you nullify the exclusion in the first instance. We're not saying you should interpret it in our favor. We're saying it doesn't apply because of pages of detailed allegations that these insurance companies and their agents procured this exclusion by lying to regulators about the state of coverage at play in 2006, and that they obtained a windfall of insurance premiums as a result to the detriment of the policyholders. And what you heard, Your Honor, from my opposing counsel was two things. There needs to be inconsistent positions, and there needs to be reliance. The first isn't true, and the second we've alleged. The reliance here is by the state insurance commissioners, who are the agents of the insurers, and inconsistent positions are not required under equitable estoppel or cases applying regulatory estoppel to the insurance context, such as the Morton case from New Jersey, which is the main case in this area. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Your Honor. Anything further, Judge Forrest? No. Thank you both for your arguments, counsel. We'll take this case under advisement. Thank you.